Dr. Amalia Ganyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Cape Town is Professor Alison Lewis, who is the Dean for the Faculty of Engineering and the Built Environment at the University of Cape Town. Prior to this post, she served as Head of the Chemical Engineering Department at UCT and was Director of the Crystallization and Precipitation Unit. Welcome to the show, Prof. Lewis. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. To begin with, as Dean for the Faculty of Engineering and Built Environment, could you tell us more about the college and some of the responsibilities that come with holding this position? Yes, um, there's sort of two main areas that I need to focus on. The first one would be on the university itself, and part of the expectation of the Dean of the Faculty is to contribute to institutional leadership and direction. And then, of course, the second part is the faculty itself. And my responsibility here is to develop and implement a strategic vision and ensure that what we're doing here is high-quality education at both undergraduate and postgraduate levels, as well as focusing on our research. And one of the things we pride ourselves on in this faculty is that our research is really speaking to complex global problems and that the engineering and built environment professionals we feel are superbly placed to contribute to solving those. So you're really looking at real world problems as well as being able to invest in our youth so that they become educated in their specific domains. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> I've had a lot of practice. <laughs> <laughs> I also noticed that part of your deanship activities, you wrote a paper with uh, Prof. Penelope Andrews, who we also hosted on the show previously. And this was about transformation and decolonization at the University of Cape Town. And I think it's such an important topic, which is really rearing its head. What were some of your key takeouts for implementation from that paper? Well, I think um, so. part of what we're trying to do in the faculty is delivering on our vision. I think we have great fundamentals. So I'm very proud and probably quite parochial in engineering in the built environment, believing that we have the, the basics are absolutely right. But I think we really need to think about our context. And that was what the decolonization discussion was and is all about. So... If we're going to truly live up to our vision as a faculty, which is really to engage with key issues of natural and social worlds and, and be global citizens, then we have to think about what does a decolonized education look like? What are the roles of engineers in building society and creating greater equality? And I think that's really a good progressive question for us to engage with. And what types of, of factors, because we, you know, we, we talk about this, some people say, um, well, we need to have, for instance, more people are, are of color and in terms of representation. Um, what were some of the factors that you're trying to implement at the college itself for a decolonization of, say, let's say, the curriculum? Yes. Well, I think, so you've mentioned diversity, and I think 
that's really, really one of our strong pillars. And it's not only for representation, but also because we believe that complex problems need diversity to solve them. If you only have one type of person in the room, you're only going to get one type of solution. So we really want um, a mixture of all different types to be able to bring their um, intellect to, to, to bear on those kind of problems. And then in terms of curriculum, um, there is an argument that you, know, you can't decolonize thermodynamics and you can't decolonize structures, which I think is true, but I think it's also context-based. So the kind of examples that you, that you use, the kind of reference points that you use, I think a lot of our examples are based on the US, and we can actually use examples that come from Africa and sort of and start to develop like relevant and context-specific curricula but at the same time also allow our students to have the opportunity to be able to practice anywhere in the world. So really having a, a global view. I think those are going to be wonderful changes which will put people at an advantage because often I think both in my remit and experience, we are less confident than let's say our Western counterparts because we're not utilizing localized examples. Absolutely, and I think there's a, I mean, there are many layers to the decolonization discussion, but I think one of them is challenging the whole mode of thinking that we have. So one of the really interesting um, books that I've been reading is a book called uh, Decolonizing University by D'Souza Santos. And he's actually a Brazilian author. And what he says is that it's binary thinking that has led us into these very complex global problems. So we think, for example, that nature is here to be exploited. The planet is here to be exploited by humans. And um, it's either the success of the individual or the success of the group. And many other examples he gives of binary thinking. And I think that's really challenging for us to re-examine the way we look at, for example, our planet and its resources. And that leads me very nicely into my next question. Some of your research initiatives are oriented around contaminated water and utilizing methods which have a mutual benefit, one in terms of being able to purify the water and also the contaminants into useful products. Not only does this have fantastic economic and environmental benefits, but it also speaks to the issue of sustainability because we really, um, like I had a, a, a colleague on the other day who said, there is no planet B. That's right, yes. And I think this whole discussion of rethinking waste and reframing them as resources, because in fact, what you call waste was at the beginning of your process something that you spent a lot of money and time and effort digging out of the ground and purifying, and then suddenly when it comes out of the other end of the plant, it's called waste. So in fact, it's just your original resource, but with a different name. So I think that the rethinking about that and the reframing of waste as potential resources is, is one of the, the, the changing modes of thinking that I think has freed us to really start looking at true sustainability. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the significant collaborations or research projects that you've been working on with your counterparts in both in South Africa as, as well as in other areas? 
Well, one of the advantages of being an academic is that you get to really collaborate globally, and we've been very, very luck with, lucky with our collaborations all over the world. Probably our strongest ones have been in the Netherlands and Brazil, um, and I've got colleagues um, at Technical University of Delft who basically pioneered some of our technology with us, as well as colleagues at Sao Paulo University in Brazil. And we actually co-authored a textbook together on industrial crystallization. So that was a really good, one of our really good projects. Um, and besides those, we collaborate with colleagues in, in Canada, in China, in Norway, Finland, Sweden. So it's really very, very global. And I think what gives me a lot of hope is not only the collaboration, but also the fact that our interests and our concerns around using engineering for good is, is echoed globally. And within the engineering space, it's a, yes, of course, we've got academic components, but it's also a very, very practical uh, a discipline. Mm. Do you mm. think there's been enough collaboration between industry and academia? Uh, there's always room for more and for better. Um, I think we can learn how to collaborate better in that in academia, we talk, we talk one kind of a language, and I think in industry, the language is usually different. So we focus on asking questions. We really want to delve deep and understand things. And we often are, are really much more interested in understanding than in having a quick solution. And often our industrial partners, they want something fast. They're not so cared about what it all means as much as solving the problem. So it's kind of also a language connection there. I think where we have been successful is where we've been able to use our mutual strengths. So our good industrial partners come with really meaty problems, and we are able to devote time and energy to solving them in a way that our industrial partners just don't have that luxury. So some of our strongest collaborations have been where we've played to our strengths. I do think that there's potential for more collaboration. I think that industry potentially doesn't understand the value that academics and research at university can deliver. They think of us as in our ivory towers being a little bit removed from reality, but I think that that's, that that's not true, and I think we can really change that conversation by learning how to work together. That speaks a lot to the point that you alerted to us earlier in terms of the diversity issue of bringing in those multiple perspectives. Yes, yes, very much so. And we want to talk to NGOs and small businesses and communities and other educational institutions, a range of different partners, not just big corporate industry. Science technology, engineering, and maths subjects have been cited as pivotal for jobs of the future. But yet when we look at various reports, they consistently report that women have been underrepresented in those disciplines, which is obviously going to create a, a knowledge gap and a disadvantage for the segment of the population when it comes to work and job opportunities in the future. In your opinion, given your role as, as dean as well as being a chemical engineer, do you think the environment in South Africa is supportive enough towards female scientists? Um, I don't think so, and I don't think it is in you know worldwide. There's something that happens to girls at a young age that turns them off STEM subjects, and so I think that 
you know, by the time it gets to making a university choice, it's already way, way too late. So my view is, and I'm not the expert on this at all, but I think it's around stereotypes, it's around uh, young girls as not associating themselves with these kind of careers. One of the things that has hit home to me was a comment that I read which said that when we present engineering as an option, we focus on math and science, and we focus on that you've got to be good at these difficult subjects. Whereas when we, we talk about medicine, we don't focus on biochemistry and organic chemistry. We focus on treating patients. So I do think that engineering is missing something there in not, not presenting ourselves as a career that is really people-centered. And I think that that's one of the things that maybe is off-putting about engineering as a career choice. You became a chemical engineer. What, what inspired you? <laughs> it's not a very good story. <laughs> I was told, first of all, that chemical engineering was the most difficult degree aside from actuarial science at university. And I was also told that um, engineering is not for girls. So I immediately decided this is what I wanted to do. So it was a very <laughs> obstructionist and <laughs> rebellious kind of decision. So still you prove people wrong. And you've gone on to make a fantastic career out of this. I've enjoyed it really very, very much. And I, and I mean, I do think that the kind of the, the thinking skills that all of the engineering disciplines um, teach are, they're universal. So it's not just around chemical and chemical processes or around electrical or mechanical engineering. It's really about teaching you how to think, how to solve complex problems, bigger picture systems understanding, and I think that is tremendously exciting. So besides introducing more of a, a people-centric human element to try to make the field of engineering more attractive to, to younger girls, what other types of interventions would you propose? I think the, the human element is one. I think that's, that's universal, not just for girls, but for boys as well. I just think that as a profession, we just not selling ourselves in a very accessible way. If you think of an engineer, I don't know what you think of, but probably it's somebody wearing hard hat and safety boots and standing next to a bulldozer building a road or something. So it's not a very, it has a particular picture. And I suppose what we'd like to say is, yeah, that's one of the pictures, but there are many, many other opportunities for people in engineering. I think the other is that we are really facing an emergency as a planet. And the kind of skills that we need to solve climate change and global warming are engineering type of skills. So if you're interested in a future for humanity, then girl or boy, this is the kind of career that you should choose. And in that vein, what types of opportunities would, would be available? I mean, we know that you do a lot of work with, with water pollutants, for instance, which is obviously a critical factor in terms of sustainability and aiding our planet. What other types of opportunities or industries could people go into? Well, if I look at research in the faculty, it ranges from we have architecture, planning, and geomatics in our faculty. So they do a lot of work around cities and urbanization and around you know, city planning. 
uh, and research related to sustainable cities right through um, electrical engineering looking at renewable energy and power through um, water treatment that, that comes in civil engineering as well as chemical engineering, things like the day zero that Cape Town experienced and a lot of interesting work that's been done around that. So, for example, one of our researchers showed that if you just captured all the storm water that fell in Cape Town, you'd be able to fill all of our reservoirs and meet all of our needs. So just even just simple research like that. That's so an incredible between, finding. Isn't that amazing? So between energy, water, cities, and a whole lot of other sort of systems-type global problems, including climate change and global warming, I would say the 21st century, the really wicked problems that need to be solved mostly live in this faculty. You've got a big job ahead of you. <laughs> because we're a gender show, we always look towards developments, um, especially from a leadership perspective. And one thing that struck me this year is that the University of Cape Town currently has a really strong board of female leadership in place, from the vice-chancellor to your three deputy vice-chancellors to your deans, which obviously includes yourself. The picture of women in leadership, however, in corporate South Africa is, is appalling, to be blunt. Mm -hmm. There was Businesswomen's Association South Africa's 2017 study showed that in JSC-listed companies, women only account for 29% of executive managers and just 4.7% of CEOs. So what has the University of Cape Town done right to improve the representation of, of women in leadership? I'm not really the expert on that, but I think that one thing that springs to mind is it's, it's time for change, and I think there are more women coming through the ranks. So one of the statistics that I know is a well-known UCT statistic is that 88% of professors at UCT are men. So just in terms of seniority, up until very recently, there haven't been sufficient women professors to be able to apply for the high-level posts. So I do think it's partly a timing thing, um, and I think it's also partly just a climate thing. Like it's, I do think there's more acceptance of women in leadership, and once you get a few women who are successful and effective, then the door is open for more. I was listening to um, an interview with Christine Lagarde a couple of weeks ago, and she was confronted with this uh, this point of view of when she assumed her her position as as head of IMF that usually when women are, are appointed to top positions it's either that the business or organization is at a precipice and about to fall off the cliff so you're you're sort of brought into a role where it's not just a glass ceiling but it's this glass cliff and how she's managed to to bring the organization back together um, and in, in some instances that you're almost primed to fail because the organization is so far gone and then it becomes, well, we appointed a woman and it's the woman's fault that it went wrong. Yes, I've, I've recently heard that and I think it's a really, it's a quite disturbing and I think it's an interesting perspective. I mean, I would, I would love to listen to that interview and hear what Christine Lagarde has to say. 
yeah, I think that that's, that sounds extremely worrying. But from a role model point of view, visibility is is really important. Um, you know, many many people visualize someone and they look towards them, especially younger students as they're growing up to, I, I guess, identify with somebody else for a potential role or field that they'd like to pursue. So given the strong representation of female leadership at UCT, how do you think that an accessibility to you as role models, what impact do you think this has on students, especially young women? I think it's massive. I mean, obviously, I'm not a student myself, so I can't answer for students. But if I look at um, our vice chancellor, she has an enormous social media following. And a lot of it is students who absolutely just think she's wonderful. And I think that she is making huge strides in just sending the message of this is possible and this is what you need to do and you too can be like me, all those kind of things that is very, very inspirational and makes what she's doing more accessible. She's very accessible. I have heard about her 3am club, which um, oh. <laughs> I, I'm glad I'm not part of, I have to say, but really, really motivational. Yes, absolutely. And I think she's, she's really got the right vibe there. And the tone that she has is, is very, very much around if you really want this, you have to work really hard. As you say, the 3AM club, um, and she's, she's just got that really, really well. Staying with the, the topic of, of gender, I came across an interesting study which was done by McKinsey a few years ago, which raises the issue of likability bias where it said that success and likability are positively correlated for men, but negatively correlated for women. So if a woman is competent, then she doesn't seem nice enough. But if she seems nice, then she's considered less competent. And this bias often surfaces in the way that women are described, both in, in terms of when they're passing and their, their performance reviews. Uh, but on the other hand, when a woman asserts herself, she's often called aggressive, ambitious, and, and out for herself. But when you uh, apply these scenarios to men, if they exert these same types of behaviors, then he's seen in a, a completely positive light. And as a result, we end up having these double standards where, where women could face penalties in the workplace by missing out on, on hiring opportunities. What's your opinion on the subject of bias? I think that I think it's really interesting, and I've read that research as well as I'm sure the one that you know about, which was done by a Harvard Business School, where they gave the students, I think it was MBA students, a case study of Harriet and Harry, and uh, an identical they were CV, exactly the same. Yes, exactly the same, um, but just the only difference was the gender, and then students were asked to rate the person's CV or the person's profile, and they found Harry to be very employable, the, you know, sort of the right kind of dynamic, committed employee, and they found Harriet to be quite off-putting and not very good for employing. So I think, I mean, I think that's quite pervasive. Um, I have a little bit of reservation about kind of, um, I suppose, well, let me put it another way. I, I do think that when you get more women in an organization and you don't just have one or two token women, then the climate does start to change. 
if you're only one, then you represent your entire gender. Whereas if you are three or four women, or as you've pointed out, UCT executive is a lot of women, then you start to see a, a little bit of uh, variation and you start to see some granularity. And I think then that kind of very crude gender bias starts to disappear. Hopefully more of it will occur. and yes, um, absolutely. That other institutions can take some, some lessons from UCT. Today, we're talking to Professor Alison Lewis, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Engineering and the Built Environment at the University of Cape Town. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. You were listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, the African Perspective, on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band, also available on DSTV Channel 802. Hi, this is Lyra, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, and democracy. Prof. Lewis, turning more towards a personal perspective, one of the questions that I'd like to ask you now is about your personal journey. In some of the conversations we've had with various guests who have reached tremendous achievements in their respective fields, we talk about some of the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. Some people speak about hard work, others talk about their upbringing or perseverance. In your opinion, what would you say have been some of the key drivers to your success? Um, well, I think probably the most important thing is privilege. I had the privilege of having a grandmother who went to UCT and a mother who went to UCT, so it was kind of expected that I would go to university. And I think that, especially looking at a lot of our students in my faculty today, many, many of them are first-generation university students. So um, I, I really have to acknowledge the fact that my privileged upbringing pointed me here. So I think that was a really important part of it. I think a fair amount of luck. Um, I think the, what you brought up before about role models and having a perspective that this was something that I could do also I think played a huge role. And can you share with us some of the moments, pivotal moments, in your life when you were growing up? I think, as I said, my grandmother was a specialist anaesthetist, which in her day was quite unusual. And my mother was a pilot, which in her day was also very unusual. So I think there was a sense that women in my family kind of went against the grain. Um, I think if I look at my, my life as a, as a student, probably the most pivotal moment in my life was getting involved in anti-apartheid struggle. And that happened most directly when I was a student at university, but while I was still a school student, I was involved in teaching um, after hours at a school set up by what was then called the Institute of Race Relations, and that made a huge impression on me. 
So I actually think that if I were to try and draw a theme through my life, probably that would be the most profound theme. Going back a little, your grandmother being an anaesthetist, your mom being a pilot, both of those roles were completely untraditional for women. That's correct. Did yeah. they did they mention like what what directed them into into becoming a pilot and anaesthetist respectively? Um, I don't know why my grandmother became an anaesthetist, but my mother actually was um, a math and science teacher. She was she told me very much that she was brought up to be not seen, not heard. She was one of five children and. Um, she had three brothers, so the girls were really trained to be quiet and submissive. So she went, she did go to university, she trained, uh, she did chemistry and maths, and then the natural pro, uh, profession for her was to be a teacher. When she got married, she gave up her honors degree because my father didn't want her to work. So actually it was very, very traditional and patriarchal. And then when she was I think it was 36, it seemed very old to me at the time, but now it seems young, she uh, went off in secret and took flying lessons because she wanted to do something that wasn't about kids and wasn't about school and wasn't about, um, I suppose, being a subservient wife and mother. So she broke out in her own little rebellion and from the flying lessons ended up flying 747s. Gosh, well, a fantastic midlife crisis to to happen, but to eventually find her freedom. Yes, yeah. Besides your mom and your grandmother, who would you say have been some of the other strong women in your life? Um, Two other examples I can think of are um, somebody called Professor Gerda van Rosmalen, who is a female professor at Technical University of Delft in the Netherlands, and I think the only female professor in her chemical and mechanical engineering department. And I met her when I was quite a new academic. Um, I was sent to do an industrial crystallization course and she was the lecturer. And we really just hit it off and she has become an incredible mentor and advisor to me. And really whenever I feel stuck with a problem, I email or call Gerda. So she's really been an amazing support to me, especially in research, but on lots of other topics as well. And then I think joining the chemical engineering department, there were a couple of older women students that really paved the way for me. So I'm, I'm very conscious and very respectful of the role that older women mentors play because they have been very important for me. Of course, they've, they've walked the journey and they've got that Absolutely. support yeah. structure in, in place. What mm. would you say has been the best lesson that you've learned throughout your career or, or lessons? Um, sure. Probably stay true to yourself and uh, stay true to your values. I think um, sometimes I've had young women asking me, like, what about a career plan? What is strategic and what should I do now to make my CV look good and those kind of questions? And my answer to that always is, you must do what feels right for you and is coherent with your values. And doing something because it looks good or doing something for other, because other people might approve or not approve, to me is, is not a good path to go. So I would say the, 
the one thing that stood me in good stead where I felt like I have made good decisions is when I have been true to myself and my values. But it is a challenge, particularly for younger people, because of, I guess, competition that's in the workplace now of, as you said, most of the people that are coming into university, this is first generation graduates. So there's a lot of hope um, and, and weight that they carry on their shoulders that when they leave with their qualification, that they're going into the workforce and that they're going to be able to have to pay back. Mm, mm. So I agree. I think it makes it very difficult. Obviously, you can't make the decision completely in isolation. So that's in engineering called a constrained problem. But nonetheless, within the constraint, you can still choose to make decisions, I think, that are uh, consistent with your own values. And finally, as we close out our conversation today, could you please share a few words of inspiration or wisdom or encouragement that you'd like to pass on to younger women in the continent who are listening to us? I suppose the best I can do is to echo um, what Katie always says in her social media feed, which is it really does take hard work and believing in yourself. Um, and I do think uh, finding a mentor, identifying people that you think are living their best life and true to their values, I think stands us all in good stead. So being you, I think, is, is the yeah. big message that, that comes out there. Well, I couldn't say that strongly enough. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us and uh, sharing your journey thus far and we wish you every success uh, as you continue within the, the faculty thank you so much and thanks so much for the chance of the interview you have been listening to Womanity Woman in Unity on Channel Africa The African Perspective and we have been talking to Professor Alison Lewis who is the Dean for the Faculty of Engineering and the Built Environment at the University of Cape Town